If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's completely free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. And it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Ruthless Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney. Before we get started today, I wanted to thank you for tuning in. I also wanted to suggest that you grab your favorite beverage, whether that is a cup of coffee, your favorite tea, and a snack. I wanted to start this podcast around the same time I started my mental health podcast around a year and a half ago, but it felt like it really wasn't the right time. After much procrastinating and knocking my head against the wall, twiddling my thumbs, and trying to figure out when it was going to be the right time to release this podcast, I finally feel like it is the perfect time to release it. This episode is about Shannon Melindy. Denise Melendi was born in Miami, Florida on October 20, 1974 to Luis and Yvonne Melendi. Luis had fled communist Cuba in 1961 and he met Yvonne in 1970 and the two of them fell in love and married soon after, raising two children in their loving home. Shannon and her younger sister Monique were the couple's entire world. In 1994, Shannon Melindy was a beautiful 19-year-old. Melindy was raised in the Miami-Dade, Florida area. Her loved ones describe her as an ambitious and popular young woman. She had accepted a paid internship at the Carter Center after her acceptance to Emory University in Atlanta. At Emory, she majored in Spanish and political science, and she had plans to join the Navy after receiving her degree. She planned to retire as a naval commander and then go into politics, and during her senior year in high school, she spoke before the United Nations and Congress. Shannon worked part-time at a softball country club where she was employed as a scorekeeper and a sports equipment salesperson. And on March 26, 1994, she had arrived at her shift at approximately 8.40 a.m. She had agreed to keep score during a game at field number one after him, her employer mistakenly slated her for a shift after a scheduling conflict. Now, she had a routine down to where she would go across the street and get a soda during a break in the game. And so, like normal, she took a break and she went and got a soda across the street at the Sitco gas station. And she was seen driving off in her black Nissan 240SX around 12.50 p.m. She was seen shortly thereafter across the street at the Sitco gas station and she was never seen again. Shannon's roommate became really concerned when she failed to arrive home by the following morning. So her roommate actually discovered her car, the black Nissan 280SX, abandoned in the Sitco parking lot during the day. The keys were still in the ignition and the vehicle was unlocked. There was no sign of Shannon at the vehicle or the scene, and so Shannon's roommate called authorities to let them know what was going on. 
Shannon had loved her car. Her parents had bought it for her, and she had taken great care of it and really appreciated it. So when she wasn't at the scene by her car, it was very abnormal. The car was also parked crookedly at the gas station. Shannon's roommate had called Shannon's parents to try to tell them what had happened, but at the time, the only person at home was Monique, who was just shy of being 14 years old. Monique had called her grandparents, who came to pick her up, and she wrote her parents a note asking them to meet her at her grandparents' house. However, Luis had said that he wasn't going anywhere until he figured out what had happened, but his his family wouldn't tell him anything over the phone. So when he arrived at the house and he got greeted the way he got greeted, he knew something had happened to Shannon. Luis and Yvonne tossed clothes into a suitcase and took the first flight to Atlanta. In Atlanta, they had learned the few details known. Shannon had worked at her job, and her fourth game ended at 12.45 p.m. Her next game was scheduled to begin at 1.15. Police had originally thought that Shannon had ran away, so a proper search and an examination of the car was not conducted, and it was actually released back to Shannon's roommate, so they didn't take fingerprints or anything like that. The police and Shannon's parents had put out missing persons posters with her description. So it said that she had been five foot six, 135 pounds with long light brown hair and brown eyes, and that she was wearing green shorts and a gray Braves t-shirt. Three days after her disappearance, a man, an unidentified man, called the DeKalb Police Department phone number on the posters, correctly identified the color of the shorts Melindy was wearing as blue instead of green as the media had reported, and said in a harsh and angry voice that he got the victim at the gas station and would keep her until he was through with her. At the time of the call, the individual claimed that he had her and that she was alive and she felt lonely. He had promised to leave a piece of Melindy's jewelry at the pay telephone booth where he placed the call as evidence of her alleged abduction. Led by caller ID to the payphone from which the call was made, an FBI agent found the ring in a small cloth bag wrapped in masking tape. The payphone booth was outside of a Burger King restaurant near Rex, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. During this time, investigators actually started honing in on someone named Colvin Cornelius Butch Hinton III, who was actually Shannon's co-worker at the clubhouse. Colvin C. Butch Hinton III pleaded guilty but mentally ill in Illinois in 1982 to charges of unlawful restraint and taking indecent liberties with a child. Hinton reportedly flirted with Melindy during games and was reprimanded by the field's management earlier in 1994. Hinton had been scheduled to work a full day on March 26, 1994, but after he learned the day before that his wife would be out of town that day, he had made other arrangements. He first called his wife's best friend and arranged to meet her that Saturday afternoon, telling her it was important that she not tell anyone where she was going or who she was meeting, and assuring her his wife would be there too. Henton then called another umpire and asked him to cover the afternoon and evening games because he had a quote-unquote hot date. 
When the other umpire was unable to accommodate him, Henton called the umpire supervisor and told her that he needed the afternoon off to care for the children of his sister-in-law, who had been hospitalized by a beating from her husband. After he left the clubhouse on March 26th, he told another umpire he was going on a date with a woman who was quote-unquote hot. Hinton reappeared at the clubhouse between 2.30 and 3 p.m. that afternoon and was also seen around that time at the gas station where Melindy's car was found. He had entered the clubhouse in an umpire's uniform and left a few minutes later in other clothes. He claimed that he was getting ready to play but was seen shortly after by the same witness headed for the clubhouse. Another witness saw Hinton around 5 p.m. and remarked he thought Hinton had left, to which Hinton replied he had forgotten to turn in a payslip and had returned to do so. However, Hinton claimed to have just arrived but had no payslip in his hand and asked the witness whether he knew where Hinton had parked his car. This witness testified that after Hinton became a suspect, they had a conversation in which the witness asked why Hinton had not told the FBI about returning to the clubhouse and seeing the witness, to which Hinton responded by asking the witness to disregard the information because it did not match what he had told the FBI. Hinton made several telephone calls that afternoon from his Clayton County home, the first less than 40 minutes after his departure from the clubhouse, which is a 25-minute drive from his home. He was also seen tending a bonfire in his yard around 3 a.m. the next morning. In April of 1994, Hinton's residence was actually searched, and authorities discovered women's clothing, shoes, a sleeping bag, and a club scorecard buried in his yard. They took away a hard plastic cooler. They had seized a black tote bag that Hinton reportedly carried on the day that Melindy vanished, and there was no sign of Melindy at the residence. Hinton had also borrowed a bow saw from his father, and it was subsequently seized from his home in that same search. They also discovered three pits buried in the backyard, one of which contained wire ties that could be used to bind wrists and ankles. Now, do you remember that masking tape that FBI had discovered at the payphone? The bag was traced to the manufacturer who said that Delta Airlines was its only customer in Georgia. That type of bag was used in the facility where Hinton had worked and was the type of masking tape used. Particles of metal found on the tape wrapping the bag with the ring were also found on a fragment of tape in Hinton's car and were a combination of metal debris found only in environments involving jet engine maintenance and repair. A waitress at a restaurant near the payphone testified that Hinton was a regular customer there. On September 8, 1994, Clayton County officials received a call about a fire that had started around 6 p.m. at Hinton's residence. Hinton had told firefighters it had something to do with a vacuum cleaner that had been on fire. The fire had caused extensive damage in the, in the rear of the home and water and smoke damage throughout. In May 1995, Hinton provided blood and hair samples to the FBI for genetic testing. An FBI agent testified in June 1995 that Hinton had a history of abducting women, talked of killing people, and lied about his whereabouts around the time that Melindy disappeared. 
Two years after Malenti disappeared, in 1996, Henton was convicted of setting his Clayton County home on fire and defrauding his insurer. He was released from a North Carolina federal prison in December after serving time for those convictions. Henton was sentenced to a prison term of more than 10 years. Several persons Hinton met while in federal prison testified to statements he made to them during his incarceration there. Adonis Cornwell testified that after he was awakened in the cell he shared with Hinton by a scream and found Hinton crying, Hinton told him that he had not killed her, the demon inside him had. That the girl worked at a softball park and her car was found nearby with the keys in it. Curtis O'Neill testified that after he mentioned he knew someone charged with murder, even though nobody was found, Hinton asked O'Neill to show him how to research in the law library cases in which nobody was found, and later asked him to sign an affidavit that they had not discussed his case. Alan Howell testified Hinton was worried he would be indicted for Melindy's death because he, his scorebook had been left in her car and he had previous offenses and that he had been burning a lot of brush and wanted to know what would be left after a body was burned. Johnny Pleasance testified that when he told Hinton gambling was his weakness, Hinton said young girls were his. Henton told Pleasance he was a suspect in the disappearance of a girl who worked at the same ballpark at which he had been an umpire, that she reminded him of a woman he had an affair with in Kentucky years earlier, and the authorities suspected him because they were aware of that situation, that he was not worried about them finding a body, and that he could be forgiven no matter what he had done. Because the inmates had told police that Hinton had made statements in relation to Shannon, they had believed they had enough evidence to charge him. In August 2004, Hinton was charged with Melanie's abduction and murder. Police believe that Hinton either killed her intentionally or that her death was an unintended result of him kidnapping her. They also believe he was the man who made the phone call to the tip line and left the ring by the phone booth. Henton pleaded not guilty to the murder, but he was convicted in September 2005 and was given an automatic sentence of life in prison as prosecutors did not seek the death penalty. He will be eligible for parole in 11 years, but it is unlikely that he will be released at the time. Henton is the first person to have been convicted of murder in Georgia without the victim's body of, or evidence of a crime scene. He initially maintained his innocence in Melindy's disappearance even after his conviction, but in July 2006, he confessed to her murder and also admitted to making the phone call and leaving the ring behind. Henton stated that he had lured Melindy into his car, then forced her to drive to his home and raped her at knife point before strangling her. He stated he burned her body and discarded the ashes. In light of Henton's confessions, authorities are renewing the search for Melindy's remains. Shannon Melindy's parents continue to fight for her justice to this day. Under Georgia's law, Hinton is eligible for parole every seven years, so the couple does everything in their power to oppose his release and ensure that no one else has to go through what they went through. This includes letter-writing campaigns and petition drives to convince Georgia's board of pardons and paroles to keep Colvin in prison. Today, though the couple resides in Key Largo, Florida, they plan to move to North Carolina to be closer to their younger daughter, Monique, who is currently engaged and residing there. 
I want you guys to take a minute and consider going online. I will post the URL in the show notes, but please go online and help sign this petition to deny Hinton parole. This concludes our first episode of this podcast. Again, I want to thank you for tuning in. I will be posting episodes weekly, so please feel free to check back every single week. I will also be making social media pages for this podcast, so once that is created and up and going, then I will definitely let you guys know.